Hello and welcome to another episode of our Thirsty Podcast. Uh, Pastor Jeremy Lightman isn't here right now. We're hoping that he's going to be able to jump in in the middle of our podcast. But our guest today is Ben Enstead. Uh, welcome, Ben. Hey, good to be here. So, Ben, tell us about your ministry. Where are you serving right now? Right now, I'm serving St. Paul Lutheran Church up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, a larger congregation. Uh, we're in the 800s, I think, on the books, and got a school, about 150 kids with uh, a lot of different things going on. I serve with John Zabel, the other pastor here. We got a staff minister, Peter Shea, then of course, a full slew gamut of teachers, which we've had a few new ones lately, and we put out calls again, four calls this fall. Three have already been filled. We're blessed in that regard. Uh, one was calling back again our principal for uh, another one-year uh, provisional call as he's uh, coming out of the public sector, but a member of the congregation, and to filled two others, first grade, third grade. And then also we had a call again for fifth because our first call for fifth got returned. But now actually we called again within the congregation, uh, another guy looking to get out of the public sector. So. So uh, your associate is, is John Zabel. So uh, I went to school with John all those years in college and seminary. So make sure you ask him what it was like to be in the choir with me and me teaching him all those lessons on yeah, how right. to sing properly. So that he could be a chairman of the hymnal committee one day, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> uh, he probably owes it all to me from all the days with uh, Professor Bershing. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so... One of the things that you and I were talking to be talking about before we started recording was a presentation that you're going to be given pretty soon on parenting. So if you want to kind of talk about uh, to our listeners what you're going to be asked to to give that presentation on with parenting and what we can hopefully learn about putting parenting practices uh, into our families because in talking with some of our teachers and our administration at our school, and even my wife, who's uh, been struggling with some parenting, uh, not at our home necessarily, but with the uh, some of the parents in our school, is that parents often don't see, don't realize that they can be the issue. You know yeah. that they don't necessarily have the skills, and nor do they admit that their deficit in these skills and then they don't want to come to learn from those who can give them those skills. So if you want to kind of talk about what you're going to be speaking on soon. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing, yeah, kind of my role here too. And I didn't get to that was called here to be pastor of outreach and family ministry primarily where John is admin and more member care work and all, all those areas of things. And it's an opportunity to present at men of his word this February in Oshkosh was asked to parent on, or parent present on parenting with love and logic and yeah, seeing so many deficiencies. I see it so much in myself, like you and I were talking about before a great opportunity for me to learn and grow too. But uh, yeah, the struggle we see so much, there's so many parents, like I think how many people didn't have a pretty, a, a very good example in their own parents growing up that are, you know, we're look, working on second generation broken homes, right. Or even more, uh, being the norm and so they don't have these examples of just even what it is to parent or like you said to uh, not knowing 
uh, that they're part of the problem. And one of the books I'm reading for my presentation, we're getting right at that. This woman thought everything was her son's problem. And it's like, well, no, you're a, basically an oppressive mother who's trying to live through her child. You know, you get those situations who are wanting the best for their kids, but then driving them to insanity um, is one side of things. Uh, and then the other side could be the parenting that is almost, if you want to say, the do nothing. So the goal with this presentation, parenting with love and logic, but I'm focusing a bit more on love. Like I mentioned to you, the presentation title, parenting with illogical love. Because we think we want to model our love or to be God's ambassadors, even for our children and to God working through us to mold them into who he has called them to be. Uh, it's not for us to be master, so to say, though we have that authority, it's more um, to be an ambassador. And that's one of those things I think a lot of parents and maybe guys a bit more, but I'm sure moms as well, uh, realizing how often in our parenting have I reacted in the way I have because my sovereignty has been offended, but I haven't really cared so much about God, you know, and his holiness being offended. Um, and that maybe my complaint and my anger with my child might be more about how you've upset my life rather than how your behavior has just offended the God who created you and has saved you. So a lot of it focusing around that then, what is our motivation as parents? Uh, and then also, too, we want the motivation in our children to be as focused on God's love, whose love is completely illogical. Yeah. Um, and then, too, really, as a parent, you in a lot of ways, you can't be logical with your love because you have to have a Christ-like love if you're going to uh, rear your children in the ways of the Lord because you're going to have to love them when they're not very lovable or consider what's best for them uh, when you're angry with them because <laughs> of what they have said or done. Yeah, what you're talking about with illogical love, I've mentioned that in a recent sermon on what we would call the prodigal son, but I talked about the prodigal father because yeah. the word prodigal really means reckless. And yep. it's the father that has reckless love. It is the the one son that we call the prodigal son that is reckless in his behavior. Uh, I would say the second son that we usually don't talk about because we don't get to that part of this, the text in the sermon, he's, he's reckless in his maybe immaturity and selfishness, but it's really that father that is a reckless love that he's willing to waste it on his son in a way. Uh, thankfully the son comes back, but I think that's part of it too. If like you're talking about is an illogical love. Yep. Oh yeah, entirely. And that's what's so great about Luke 11 there is I think the second parable with the last coin maybe emphasizes a bit more of the persistence of it all. But the first one and the with the lost sheep is so reckless too. You know, you think of that too. The answer is, does not the shepherd go out and look for the one who's lost and leave the 99 in the open field? The answer is no, he doesn't, you know. A good shepherd wouldn't do that. He wouldn't leave them all by themselves at risk of, of theft or, or death from animals. But that's the reckless love of our God, you know, and, and we need to be reckless like that too. And I say need as in that's who our children need us to be is reckless in our love. And, and it means sacrifice on our part, not to the degree, Lord willing, at least that, well, we can never sacrifice as Christ did, but to even to the point of being willing to give our lives. But I think, too, I wasn't preaching on that, but uh, 
you think of, boy, when was it? It's several weeks ago already, sometime in Pentecost there. Of, to a degree, it's almost easier for, for a human. Like if I had to give up my life for my child, that would be easy to do in that moment, right? And then it's, it's you're done, right? It's done. My parenting is done. My life is done. I'm with Jesus in heaven. The more difficult thing is to sacrifice yourself day after day, right? Yeah. Same as a, in our walk with Christ to crucify the sinful nature every day in repentance to pick up our cross daily and follow after him, you know? Um, and that's so much of parenting too. And that's a fun part of parenting, like you know, is I, I can't tell you how many times over the last seven years, seven and a half years, I've gotten to be a parent now. You know, you see it as a pastor, but it's different when you're a parent of saying to my wife, wow, it is amazing how much God loves us because of how much right now I'm struggling to love my child in this moment, you know, but yeah. his love is perfect. And I do so much more against him than my kid could ever do against me. Yeah. Uh, my wife, Shelly, she's gotten to say the last few years about her youngest daughter, Belle, that if, because we have four daughters, that if Belle, who was a very difficult infant and toddler, that if, Shelly says that if she would have been the first child, she would have been the last child. <laughs> and, but I, I told her, I disagree with her because I would have said, no, we got to keep trying because they got to be better than this one. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and yet she is all four of our girls are really sweet and she is super sweet is just, we just work with them. But everything you're saying about illogical love reminds me of uh, the saint whose funeral I'm preaching for on Monday that here's this lady, Rosemary, that I've only gotten to know her the last two years as her pastor with the merger, and she's been homebound an entire time with oxygen. But as the great-grandmother, these two young ladies who grew up in our school, one is now a freshman at Shoreland, the other is an eighth grader, uh, she pretty much a kind of half-adopted them. The family's all kind of messed up. Every, all the children have different last names. Even these two sisters, they have the same mom, but different dads. And uh, the one, the older one, so this is how it's confusing for our listeners. because It's confusing to me. <laughs> Rosemary is the biological great-grandmother of the freshman. She is not the biological great-grandmother of the eighth grader. But she took both of these girls into her homes, raised them like a parent, even though she's a great grandparent. And uh, they both said they would not be in the school. They would not, uh, the older one would not be confirmed. Uh, they would not know the Lord like they do. And this is from them. Uh, they would not know God as they do if it wasn't for their great grandmother's reckless, illogical love. Because it would have been very easy for her to say, no, I don't have the time or energy to do that with them. And yet uh, the eighth grader told me she remembers when they were, her, her and her sister were younger and they would spend like three days in a row with great grandma and then they'd be with another parent and so forth. But when they were with great grandma with their Rosemary, they would comb her hair and everything. I don't know. And she said they look good. I don't know if like a five and six year old can really make an adult's hair look good. But <laughs> she, Rosemary let them do that. And she did their hair. They're black and she's white and that's different kind of hair. And yet right. to, to demonstrate that kind of love, even with something as simple as hair. Yep. 
Well, I think that's awesome. You bring up uh, a point that I've kind of made with my son recently a couple times as saying, and I've, with a couple kids here struggling in school that I, I teach in catechism class for eighth grade and even give them some, if you want to say tough love, but saying to my son too, I said, I do all this because I love you. Because if I didn't love you, right? And if I didn't stay here holding you and helping you uh, through this darkness that you're dealing with, I said that if I didn't love you, then I won't care. And then I won't be doing this. And then I just let you be and and go do my own thing and love myself. Um, but I do love you. And that's, this is the proof of it. And to have, to have those conversations with your kids. And my son, he's seven, right? And he's getting it to see that um, where he thinks he's not worthy of my love and maybe having a more tender conscience in regards to even though his struggle to obey the commands, not only of God, but also just the expectations in our household, which neither my wife and I think are severe. It's kind of standard stuff, but that's the stuff he struggles with the most. But, you know, like I think I said to you, I'm the worst kid in this house. And at first I joked with him. I said, well, you know, but it's just you and your sister. So it's a 50, 50 chance, <laughs> but it was the worst kid at the time. But uh, that, it didn't hurt the conversation, but realizing he needed something deeper than that. And then we had a great moment of, you know, he, here's a seven-year-old. I don't think I could think the way he does until I was probably in college, but sitting down with Romans seven with Paul's struggle with sin. I said, look at Paul. He's like the greatest Christian who ever lived and look at his struggle or, and then we sat down and read through, uh, and then read through Luke 11 with the, the, the parable of the lost sons, as I always like to call it, like you said, too, or look at how the father loves so much, right? And I said, I would always, and get to say to him, I will always run after you. You know, I didn't go into the cultural things there, which make that parable even more right. fascinating, which I'm glad you bring that up, like Prodigal God, Tim Keller's book. Not all of his stuff is great, and he's got some things very, very wrong even in his book, but the premise he sets and helping us see the cultural setting I think in his book, The Prodigal God, does such a great job of setting that up for us and showing us God's heart, the Father's heart, so much of just this reckless love, this illogical love. Right. Well, we can get into the gospel lesson. Jeremy's not going to be joining us. He texted that he's out sick today. So he apologizes, Ben, because Ben and and Jeremy were classmates. So anything that you want to talk about, Jeremy feel free to share it because he's not hey, here yeah. to, re to rebuttal. Yeah. I mean, kind of missing that. It would have been great to catch up in that way, but uh solid guy. I've always appreciated him. He did though uh, come down into our class. I think he must've needed a little remedial work or something, you know, being one of those PKs. So, but uh, which is interesting because his uh, sister, Becky, who's married to Ben Faxon uh, is one of my wife's best friends. And, it's just kind of cool the connection we've built over the years with the Lightning family has just been a blessing and it's kind of cool to see him where he's at now and although I still think I think Torland is his third stop now and I yes. finally just made it to my second stop so <laughs> there you go and, and I and I also got to know Ben I didn't realize when I asked Ben to be a guest on the podcast that you guys had been classmates uh, I knew Ben from uh he serves as a district mission board chairman in northern wisconsin and i'm the dmb chairman for southeastern wisconsin so we get to go to the board for all missions meetings and so forth together 
Yeah, that's always a great time. And that's yeah, something I love that I was able to stay still do when I moved from my previous congregation of up in Door County after 13 years there. It was glad to be able to, con to continue to do that work because I really love doing it. We were in a good place now as a board, as you know, too. It's just, it's an exciting time to be doing this work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's difficult, but it's exciting. And what Jeremy missed out, too, while, while we were waiting for him to come on, uh, before we just started recording is uh, that Ben and I probably talked a good full 20 minutes on just Star Wars stuff. It was pretty geeky <laughs> yeah. things yeah. that Jeremy and all of you missed out on. But next time we'll record all of that for that for that extra bonus material. There you go. We have bonus material. The Yeah. The after after show. That's right. <laughs> uh, so I'll read the gospel lesson that we'll talk about. Matthew 11. While John was in prison. He heard about the things Christ was doing. He sent two of his disciples to ask him, are you the coming one or should we wait for someone else? Jesus answered them, go report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. As these two were leaving, Jesus began to talk to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and he is much more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Amen, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not appeared anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, Ben, why was John in prison? Yeah, you, you see this in other points of scripture in the Gospels. He's in prison because he, he wouldn't shut up right, with preaching God's word, and in particular preaching against uh, Herod's sinful lifestyle. And Herod had had enough. Uh, having the political power that he did, he decided to put him away so he didn't have to listen to the truth anymore, which I think is kind of interesting because he would still bring him privately to himself or at least before some of his friends sometimes and, and talk to him. But he's still, well, it's just like all of those Herods, right? This isn't Herod the Great of Jesus' birth. This is, uh, was it his grandson or son, right? Um, but they seem to have some of the same problems of being illogical, if you want to say but then still wanting to hear a little bit about him. And we see that later on with Jesus, right? Herod doesn't want to hear what Jesus has to say at, uh, before Jesus' crucifixion, but he does want to see signs, right? He still has this strange interest in, I don't know if I'd say it's morbid, but this curiosity that's missing the uh, faith, right? Yeah, and I was just editing the book I had written and... Uh, in there, as I was reading, rereading my what I had written about John the Baptist, now he was not afraid to go and tell his ruler, his governing authority, the king, that he was doing something wrong. I challenged people, and I really challenged pastors in that part is where are the pastors who are John the Baptist today of calling our leaders to repentance that we're kind of afraid to do that? And yet, it's a biblical thing. John does it. Uh, Nathan does it with David, Elijah does it with Ahab, Daniel does it with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that we should not be afraid 
to speak up and uh, call people to repentance. Because just because, you know, if we're, you and I, Ben, are called to call leaders to repentance that are in our congregation and call our neighbors to repentance, that doesn't stop all of a sudden when they take office. Now they're exempt. You know, we should be bold. And it's going to cost us like it cost John. Yeah. Well, I think to that as well as, you know, in scripture, of course, is the best examples, but you see the confessors did the same thing. The Lutheran confessors did the same thing. Or I think today, like even in your church, you wouldn't function anymore, or at least properly, if uh, whether it was an elected position or if you want to say, uh, maybe say a member has assumed, not that they have assumed, but maybe the congregation assumed they have authority because they're the biggest giver, right? And therefore, we mm -hmm. can't say things to them because what if they go, which almost is kind of turning a person into savior, which I think a lot of people have done in our country for a while, or, you know, they can always, that temptation will be there, turn them into savior, you know, a politician or a man. And the Lord has a lot to say about that, not to look for our strength and confidence in princes, and to not be afraid, because I think I've even heard some people, I don't know if it's pastors, but kind of say, like, you can't speak against them because they're the authority. And it's like, well, my response is, well, the truth is the truth. Yep. And I think then when it comes to respecting those in authority, it depends on how do I broach it then, right? Is it mudslinging, which I am certainly guilty of, <laughs> but or is it to reveal the truth when there is evil? Um, that's got the role of God's people, no matter the setting. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between, I think this is what people get confused. There's a difference between you and I getting up in the pulpit and calling just an official to repentance. Cause even I just mentioned it uh, offhandedly in the last sermon is, and I mentioned the sins of the outside world. I was preaching on John the Baptist and the wilderness of the world. I said, those are the sins out there. We're not, I'm not preaching against them. I'm preaching about the sins in the wilderness of your heart. And so I think there's a difference between, you know, preaching it as a pastor in the pulpit, but you and I cannot divorce ourselves from our vocation as also being citizens. And as citizens, if we see that someone's doing something wrong, whether it's our mayor or a school board official, or it's the president or vice president, we should be, uh, bold enough to call that person to repentance. Yeah, uh, exactly. so, so one of the things that Ben and I were mentioning too, as we were waiting for Jeremy is that if Jeremy didn't get on, Ben gets asked all the questions. <laughs> uh, so here, here's another one. Why does John refer to Jesus as the coming one? And I'm glad you asked that because in the times I've preached on this, on this text, I haven't, emphasize this point too much and you know looking at the greek you got the article with the the participle you know it turns it into essentially a noun right and this title that he has and it's just really cool to think of that um this is the one you know who john has been waiting well all of god's people have been waiting for right since the garden of eden uh with the promise of the savior but also too you think of john in particular right I was told, I was given this mission by God that I'm the predecessor, right? I'm the one who prepares the way for the one who is coming. So, and you think he's using, it's not just action, but the promise from Adam and Eve through Micah, 
but even words spoken to himself, I'm the forerunner of the coming one. So are you the coming one? And that's why I ask, or do I need to, or do I need to wait a little bit longer, right? Because um, I'm having trouble with this right now. <laughs> what, as you said that, are you the coming one? You know what I jumped to was uh, Ghostbusters. I was going to say, are you Ghostbusters? Are you the gatekeeper? Yeah. Are, are, yeah. are the gatekeeper? Right. <laughs> and then, are you the chosen one? And then yeah. Ray says no. And then they yeah. say, well, Ray, next time someone asks you if you're yeah. a god, you say yes. Say, yes! <laughs> yes. <laughs> we just watched that a month or two ago. Great film. <laughs> yes. Uh, but you were talking about waiting, and that reminded me of this last Saturday, our church had our happy birthday, Jesus. And this year, the theme was uh, birthday in Bethlehem. And it, it was the first time we did something like this, where we have one of our members as a pilot, he and our school chaplain, they acted like a pilot and the co-pilot. And then they were f flying the kids uh, to Bethlehem. And then they flew them up into the temple in the church where I dressed up as Simeon. And I talked about how the pastor at this church is not a very patient person, but Simeon, <laughs> he's a very patient person. And he was waiting just like all the people that had waited and, and went through the promises like you did to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Moses and the Israelites, to David, to Isaiah. And now he, he talked directly to Simeon. Uh, but something else this reminded me of as I was studying this is, I don't know if you're a college football fan, Ben. Not really. Uh, me either, but I, I happened to hear this on podcast was uh, Deion Sanders that he went from head coach to from Jackson State, where I think they finished like 12 and 0, but it's a small black university. And he went to Boulder, Colorado. But in what everyone was picking on Deion Sanders for was he, he said to his new team in Boulder, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. And they were talking about how, you know, as a head coach, you should really talk about that we're coming. But if you know anything about Deion Sanders, it's yeah, all about right. self-promotion. But, you know, he's he's the coming one. And but Deion Sanders is talking about what he's bringing with him. And but more importantly, obviously, what John is talking about, what Jesus is bringing with him, because I think maybe this is also referring to Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So John was troubled. Uh, so if you compare how Jesus or John pictured Jesus in Matthew 3, where he says, I baptized you with water for repentance, but the one who comes after me is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing for... His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So, Ben, with the way John pictured Jesus there and what he sees Jesus actually doing in his ministry, why do you think John's question is justified? Yeah, because, well, and you, you see this, and it's so good to go back to that because you, you look at him, and he's expecting kind of his ministry to a degree 2.0 right you know 
calling out the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the call again and again and again to repentance, which Jesus also does. But I think uh, Brother Deutschlander, he does such a good job, and I'm sure you've got the books and have read them too, on giving advice to God. And in volume one, he covers this very text. And I think he puts it so well. He's He's expecting to see, if you want to say, the fire and the brimstone now. Okay, the Messiah has come. He's going to bring his vengeance on his enemies. He's got, you know, where's the winnowing fork or the winnowing shovel, right? And to clear up. I know. And- you, you and I and last week, Jeremy, we all got tripped up on winnowing fork. We're so used to that from the yeah. NIV <laughs> to go to the EHV that calls it a shovel, which makes more sense, I think, because if you're trying to shovel wheat and oats with a fork, that doesn't work. You need a shovel. Right, right. Well, I think, too, is just that uh, where's the fire in all this? Mm-hmm. And um, I think, too, like even Deutschlander, I kept the note because I think the last time I preached on this, I just said, uh, and <laughs> my dear professor said this, you know, where was the Messiah's winnowing fork, winnowing shovel, clearing the threshing floor, scandalous and unrepentant Herod still sat on the throne. Where was a gathering of wheat into the barn? John heard of how evil angels obey Jesus' commands and yet was rejected by people, even attacked by the people who came to save him. Uh, where's the burning of the chaff with unquenchable fire? And here's John right now sitting in the dungeon. Right? And I love how Deutschlander at the end, it kind of gets to a couple of the other questions coming up, but how Deutschlander ends that section. Instead, John finds himself alone in a dark dungeon for having faithfully preached the word of God and what would soon be or what would soon come would be the death, or, and then this is how he quote, or Deutschland says, not of a great hero, so thinking of himself as we look at John, not of a great hero of faith, but a death inspired by a bimbo and ordered by a drunk, right? You know, that's that's John's end. And even, like, he expected, he knew, he confessed, I must become less, he must become more. Um, I think Deutschlander gets at that point, like, kind of wondering, I, I didn't think it would go this far, right? Mm-hmm. And then, too, I thought you would be doing more of, right. you know, vengeance upon the enemies of God, and they would tremble before you, you know? Well, and that imagery of uh, the sowing the seed and so forth that we mentioned from Matthew 3 reminds me of the Bible study I had this morning with our members. We watched episode 8 of season 1 of The Chosen, And that's one where Jesus is going to the Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob. And there, right at the end of the episode, Peter gets really excited. He said, did you tell her? You know, because he hasn't really been telling people in the first seven episodes who he is. And so Peter's excited. He finally tells someone who he is. And then in that episode, they have Jesus saying the time for sowing is still going on. But he emphasizes it's also now the time for harvest. The harvest is plentiful. And, you know, maybe John is looking for harvesting and Jesus is still about sowing. That's a really cool application. I never, you know, and I haven't been watching The Chosen yet. It's kind of on the list of things. It's it's sometimes with little kids. I can't stay awake at night anymore. Well, you know, you got to fit that <laughs> in with Star Wars and Ghostbusters, put The Chosen. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But I think another thing, there's so much of it with John struggling, and we can understand it from a rational point of view, why is, you know, it's the same thing, why we struggle sometimes the way we do. Um, well, that, that gets to my next question. Why do you think yeah. there was confusion 
on the part of whether it was John or whether it was on the part of his disciples, because we don't know for sure. But why would you think there's confusion on the part of John, his disciples, and the people about Christ? Because Jesus has to explain who he is to the people, too, right after he's done talking to the two disciples. Yeah. I think, and I don't know the case with John, because he, he is something unique, and especially of what Jesus says of him. But obviously here in a moment of weakness, is struggling with, it seems, especially, you know, I knew I would decrease and you would increase, but I didn't think it'd go this far. And you're, you aren't quite what I expected. And I think that's, that's a whole theme of Advent, right? Uh, the expectation of coming, but then also too, we ought to expect what is to be expected. And that's when we'll get to that in Jesus reply to him. But I think it's the struggle. Sometimes we forget to keep coming at our existence and God's promises from God's perspective rather than our own. So, you know, with John and the others, especially the others, John's disciples and the other people, we see it in Jesus' own disciples. How often did they struggle to separate uh, either the misunderstandings or even the blatant false teachings regarding the Messiah and separate that from what Christ kept telling them again and again and again, this is what it will happen, right? Until eventually Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Right? You have in mind the things of God or a man instead of the things of God. And, and it seems like that's just some of it here. And that's where we get ourselves in all kinds of trouble as well. Right. And building on what you were saying is, you know, John knew that Jesus was the Christ. And notice how Matthew says this. While John was in prison, he heard about the things Christ was doing. He doesn't say heard about the things that Jesus was doing. He, he emphasizes, so the Holy Spirit gives him that word and says the anointed one, the chosen one. Yep. Uh, but but he, he knew that Jesus was the Christ, but where were the acts of judgment that were promised? Why did John look like a failure and why did it look like the, win, the wicked, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, King Herod, who throws him in prison? Why does, what do they look like they're winning? And then I was thinking about this too. John is the second coming of the prophet Elijah. So I'm wondering if John had maybe some of the deficiencies that Elijah did mm -hmm. that Elijah, you know, he seems to have some severe mood swings. You know, he <laughs> goes, right. He goes from uh, that great victory on Mount Carmel. And then he's, he's running for 40 miles or it was 40 days. And then he's depressed wanting to die underneath a broom tree, thinking he's all alone. And I'm wondering if John, he's out preaching in the wilderness, he has these huge crowds, and now he's in a dungeon of King Herod's palace all by himself. You know, does he suffer from those kind of things? Again, like liken it to us that, hey, it's easy to believe in Jesus when things are going well and I'm having a good faith day, but what happens when things are pretty crummy? And there's all kinds of health problems on top of a car accident, on top of a, a job loss, all in the same time frame. And now it's a lot more difficult. And you and I go up and down with our faith as well. Yeah. And that comes down to two. And what the change isn't so much the trouble, but because our focus is lost, because we've stopped in those moments, we look at our experience again. 
and my experience because there's the devil right there with us, right? And it's the same old temptation, really. You boil it all down. He said to Adam and Eve, he used, even though they they stood there in perfection with the tree, he turned it around on them and said, look, at here's your experience shows you. What you see with your eyes shows you God is not good. He's holding out on you. And that, and he does that too with us. When we meet calamity, we stop looking at it from you know, saying for some reason, you know, it's a weakness of faith that in this moment, God isn't faithful because this happened. And then, you know, maybe in a pastoral moment, depending on the, the person, you got to say, okay, now find me chapter and verse where, where God says when, if you want to say from our perspective, bad things happen, that means now God is faithless. Right. So you just use the word experience. So what does Jesus point to to prove that he really is the Christ? What experience does he point to? Yeah. And I really appreciate this opportunity because I had forgotten Luke's account is awesome because he gives the answer without saying anything. In Luke's account, Luke says, right then and there, Jesus did a bunch of healing. And then he turns around and says, here's what I've done. You know, I, I've done all these miracles. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm fulfilling essentially all the Old Testament prophecies about myself, right? Right now, and like you said, it kind of comes back to what you were thinking. And I think that's a great connection to make is I'm planting right now. I'm sowing seeds right now. The harvest stuff, that's coming later yet. Um, but I'm doing this work already. And it's just, he just says, you know, the things you've been hearing about me, that's the message he sends right back to him. And as we'll see in the end, Obviously, that's enough for John because that's all Jesus says. And he, because he knows being the Lord, that's all that John needed to hear, even in this moment of weakness. Um, I need this reassurance. And yep. it's just such a cool thing. It's like, I am the Christ. You call me the Christ. You're wondering if I'm the coming one. Uh, yes, you got nothing to worry about. Yeah. You wonder if I'm the coming one. Well, here, and I'm going to quote from two different sections of Isaiah to prove he's the coming one. Uh, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unplugged. The crippled will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Waters will flow in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. That's Isaiah 35 and also Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, chosen me, to preach good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for those who are bound. So you think of, this is probably a couple of decades ago already that, you know, the WWJD bracelets were so popular. What yeah, would right. Jesus do? Well, I think this text is really saying, oh, don't use those bracelets. Use, if you want to put a bracelet <laughs> on, put on WWDJD. What yeah. did uh, Jesus do? Um, so that's the key is don't, fo don't think about what would Jesus do? Think about what he did do. And yeah. that's what he's pointing to here. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, John's question may have been a, a question of human weakness. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about how we might have questions of human weakness. We had that in our Bible study today of just wondering, like my dad had a stroke last week. Thankfully he's doing well. But as someone said, well, you know, why would your dad be healed? And I'm grateful he is. But yet her husband was taken to the Lord a few years ago with a brain tumor. Uh, 
why why is this bad thing happening and why is this good thing happening to someone else and you know we don't have any of the answers we don't know god's plans and so we can have these questions of weakness that john and his disciples may have had so the key though is Ben, how did John answer, I'm sorry, how did Jesus respond to John's question? Yeah, well, and I think it's, yeah, his response to John's question is like the same message John had been hearing all along. Because uh, I think one point to just realize too in that weakness is forgetting for a time that God can't use what we perceive to be bad for good when we can't understand the mind of God that is so much higher than our, our thoughts and our ways. You know, we have a great example again, like you brought up that woman who said, well, why did my husband go? Um, or we think in our district, in our church body, we lost another pastor who from our perspective have many faithful years left in them, you know, and pastor Mike Zuberbeer, whose funeral I got to go to today. But I think uh, Pastor Joel Zank, our district president, put it so well when suddenly we heard he was in, in, in the hospital not doing well at all, and then just hours later um, get the news that he's with Jesus. Uh, Pastor Zank just so excellently and simply put, according to God's perfect plan, right? It's that moment of weakness where we forget, and, and maybe John does too uh, in, this, in this time. My plan isn't perfect, and and Jesus, in reminding him, bringing him back to the Old Testament scriptures, you you want to know, making sure I'm the coming one, uh, and that I am who you are confessing in the Christ, and here is everything I said I would do. And in that brings the peace that John needs, as he, even as he sits there rotting away in prison, that God is going to use this to glorify his name, further his kingdom, and also bless me, even if I can't see the end game, unless it is just then in the end, my death. Um, and I think that's, you know, Jesus responds to John with such gentleness, right? You think if you or I were in charge, being like, John, you're the best and greatest, although he hasn't said that yet, right? Mm. The greatest that was ever going to be. And you're the forerunner, and you know this better than anybody else here in Israel. And now you're going to complain? Give me a break, you know. Right. What's that? That's not Jesus. He meets John where he's at. I mean, the guy's poor guy sitting in, literally in a hole in the ground um, because of an evil man who does not want to hear God's word. And Jesus just brings him the message of peace, exactly what John needs. Yeah, and then he follows that up by saying, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. And uh, taking offense means to stumble in faith, to lose faith because of something uh, one has heard about Jesus. And it's natural for sinful people, no matter how strong their faith is, to stumble and have weak moments. I have a friend that used to say, well, I'm, I'm having a bad faith day. So doubts may threaten, but they don't have to destroy it. And so it's important to note what John did with his doubts. He took them, to Jesus. Again, whether he had the doubts or it was his disciples who had the doubts, they send them to Jesus. And that's why he and us are blessed. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we can disagree with in scripture and say, I don't know if that's the right way to do things. Or 
as we're talking about seeing God's will in our lives. I don't know if that's the right way to do things, but we have to understand and be humble enough that one of us is God and the rest of us are not. And so <laughs> if we disagree with God, we're the ones who are wrong and not him. Yeah, right. And I think that's part of the, I just had this thought as I was preparing for this too, in a way, Jesus is kind of saying, using to use a phrase we use in modern America, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Jesus was deus obscunditus, right? God is hidden in the flesh and so much. And he's, and he's offense so many times, especially when he goes to Nazareth, right? It was an offense to them because, again, they, they judge Jesus on just what their eyes could see in that moment, in that time, or what they knew of him. And how often don't we do that too? Because God is, so much of God is hidden from us, you know, in our day-to-day lives or in trouble where the specific answer to our question isn't right there written in God's word. Like that woman, why did you, Lord, take my husband home? Besides, you know, what's written in scripture to take him home to heaven, right? Because his time, his time had come. And it's just that, that matter of, growth and trust and sometimes we have those times of weaknesses to remember don't take offense at the god who who is god and will always be god and who always has um good in mind for you both now and forever so at the end jesus says to the people amen and every time he says amen and then he tells them something it's going to be something really important so he says amen i tell you among those born of women, there has not appeared anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he's calling John uh, greater, that there's no one greater than John. And that's because he is the forerunner who is preparing everyone for the Savior. He is the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, where Malachi writes, Look, I'm sending my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And so John's that greatest prophet because up to this time, he's the only one who had been given the privilege of preparing the way for Jesus. And then the other prophets did that, but he's the only prophet that got to see the God in the flesh that they had been prophesying. So then, Ben, if John is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, how does he say that if you're the least, you can still be greater than the greatest? Yeah, and I think as we go along down those lines, I think most agree is the point is, okay, John was greatest in a lot. Part of that degree was just he got to see, and he was the final forerunner, if you want to say. They were all forerunners. All the prophets were forerunners to a degree, right? And he is the last one. He got to see, and to a degree, minister with him. But then we, he didn't get to see the end game, right? He died in prison, ended up getting his head chopped off and put on a platter, literally, Right. And he didn't get to see everything brought to fruition before he went home to heaven. Like all those saints who had gone before who longed to see the fulfillment of all these things. We get to look back. Everything that God was going to do to rescue us from our bondage to sin and the power of the devil and even from the grave itself. We get we have the privilege. We get to look back. It's all complete. It's all prepared for us. Gathered together. Um, and to have that revelation always at our disposal, which reminds us even the least, you know, we we get to be greater than him, but then it, and what a beautiful words there too, but also reminds us, you know, convicts our sinful heart to think, look at how much I struggle when God says to me by 
through his son that I'm greater than even John, even if I'm the least in this kingdom, because I have it all here and look at yet how I struggle. And that's just the nature of being simulius to epicator. Yeah. You know, but yeah. So the key is that, yeah, we are, though we are the least in the kingdom of heaven, we're the greatest, uh, greater than John, because we are seeing the fulfillment of everything. John, like you said, died in prison. He didn't get to see Jesus suffer and die and rise, ascend into heaven. With the eyes of faith, we've been able to see the fulfillment of all of that. Uh, while John's disciples were still within earshot, Jesus asked the crowd what they had gone out to see. I think see is a strange word here to use for a prophet because as a prophet's a speaker. His message is more important than his appearance. Yet what was Jesus applying with this question to the crowd, Ben? What did you go out to see? Yeah, I think some of it is a bit of judgment against them. It kind of seems like you guys, maybe you went out for the spectacle of it all rather than to heed God's word and listen to it. Because he brings out those examples, though, too. You didn't go out to see some wishy-washy guy who didn't know what he was talking about. Um, and to see a prophet, but more than a prophet, but it almost seemed like, yeah, your motivation was one of, this is the popular thing to do, the new thing to do, maybe the new spiritual guru who showed up on the scene. Um I guess to me, that's what it seems to be what Jesus is implying here. Yeah. Rather than the listening. Yeah. Are they, yeah, are they going out to see, you know, are you going out to see a reed shaken by the wind? And I take that, that they expected a teacher who bends his teaching to suit uh, whatever way the winds of the popularity is, are going that way. And I think you can kind of see that with preachers today that are afraid to preach against the, the sins that are very popular today because they're afraid they're going to lose people or offend people in our culture. Uh, Or like we talked about at the beginning of preachers afraid to call out those governing authorities because we're afraid, Hey, we might lose our tax exempt status and have bad press and so forth. Uh, And, and a man, did you go to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Uh, There, I think they're expecting to see a darling of the media, someone who's a lackey of King Herod. Uh, and John, he's not wearing soft clothing. We learned last week, he's someone who's wearing, uh, you know, rough camel's hair clothing. And I don't know if you know this, Ben, but I've often called, uh, Jeremy that he needs to be a John the Baptist, uh, as a youth minister to short, the Shoreland kids. You don't need a, a guy in tight jeans and a plaid untucked shirt and so forth. He needs to be John the Baptist. So I found for his wife, Abby, and I texted her this this week, that Docker sells a camel's hair suit coat for only $100. So I said, hey, yeah, there you go. There you go. He can be he he can literally be dressed like John the Baptist. Well, I think I like how you bring that because uh, Keith Wessel brought that up in the f- funeral sermon today uh, of talking about Mike Zuberbeer also in the same kind of way. He wasn't that silken scarf or whatever that could be tossed aside. He was that somewhat uh, rough wool blanket that kept the sheep warm, mm. right? And that's that's what God's people need in, in that they don't need the, the flash. They need someone who truly cares and is a shepherd to the sheep. Right. Um, that's what John was, you know, sometimes yeah. abrasive, but like I've, I've said for a long time, what do you expect? The, the God's word is abrasive. It's its nature because of the nature of the human soul. 
Yeah. 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 John preached a message of repentance and then he lived that message. He lived the part. And the crowd recognized John as a great prophet, but Jesus is saying they're missing his message. Yeah. Uh, so Ben, Advent is a season of expectation. It's also a season filled with many temptations to have the wrong expectations, both of John and Jesus. So what are some wrong expectations that people, like Christians, can have during the Advent season? Yeah, like I never thought of with John before. Like one thing I kind of thought, uh, and maybe thinking of more of the... Uh, the liberal side of Christianity and like people, you know, taking and abusing characters from scripture um, and what they did, I can see people saying, look at John, he's, you know, the anti-establishment, you know, and all this and using that as an excuse, taking, standing up to sin and even uh, bad leaders to a whole nother degree. But then I think with Jesus, um, so easy to fall into what our culture has turned it into, you know, really the great 20 song, here comes Santa Claus, that that's what Christmas is. And, you know, almost turning Jesus into the expectation is just a giver of earthly gifts. Um, he wants me to be happy. I've heard that come out of people's mouths. And I, one time I was just so blunt. I said, can you please find me chapter and verse where God says, I just want you to be happy. Yeah. You know, I was wants to be happy. He wants me to be prosperous. And it's all, you know, the Joel Osteen. It's just all this, I think, especially at Advent, perhaps maybe more than any other season of the church year is the temptation of the theology of glory. Um, I guess at, uh, Lent has its own version, but it's more of the glory of self-righteousness, maybe even more than, than hence, you know, the uh, Ash Wednesday text, the gospel always. But here, I think, you know, the theology of glory and not the cross. And that was a bit of John's temptation, maybe just a little bit, right? You know, I want to see a little bit more glory now and not the cross. And that's just a daily battle we have to recognize it. Yeah. And there, as you're talking, uh, I was thinking of Talladega Nights. I prefer the baby Jesus. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I think that's the way uh, a lot of people are. They do prefer the baby Jesus to the the Jesus that's uh, fulfilling G John's message because they both begin their ministries preaching a message of confession and repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. And in application, I think you know we can skip uh, the midweek and Sunday Advent services and then only come to the Christmas services. We can forget about all of that repentance and just get to the good part, you know, which is yeah. Christ underneath the cross in a manger. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a danger that we can become like the crowd and we reject the gospel that's personified by Jesus. So I think blessed are the people who has pastors that are going to lead them and not be offended by these things. Yeah. And I think a point too, is it came up in a faculty devotion. It might've been even yesterday or Wednesday morning of you know even in your church and i think especially this time of year find in your sanctuary in particular finding that balance between not just tasteful decoration which is just a, one thing to have taste and not be hokey about it but also to have that balance so that if you want to say 
what we have done to our sanctuaries, especially at Christmas, I think, can help emphasize the message being preached rather than distract from it so that it's just about the beauty and the skill of going beyond just thanking God for those people and using those gifts to what, <laughs> here's the hot button topic, what often happens I've seen uh, over years with uh, Advent by Candlelight, if it's it becomes a competition of who has the yeah. nicest table, you know, sure. rather, uh, you know, to say, we got to escape all the Russian rigmarole of this, and then all you ended up doing was creating the same thing. I'm not saying that happens at everyone, but I've seen it happen, and it made a god-awful mess of this time of rest and eager expectation, and we can do that in our own sanctuaries, I think. You know, right. Well, and what you were talking about with, you know, tasteful Christmas decorations reminded me uh, several years ago, I, it must have been around Christmas Day or Sunday after Christmas, I preached a sermon where the title was something like The Dragon in the Stable. And I talked about how it was Revelation chapter 12, where the dragon is there trying to consume the mother of the Son of God, which is the Christian church. And yeah. so I talked about putting a dragon next to your stable. And I think I actually had one of my girls, little Fisher Price dragons that they had with one of their castles and put that in with the manger scene. That's just clever. To, yeah. Yeah. Just to remember, or, you know, what could you let, what could become your dragon at the manger? Right. That'd be fun to, that could be interesting to have include that text just in I mean, add a oh. reading for Christmas, you know? So, so here I had one of my teens Asked me on Sunday, uh, I talked about uh, the wood, the rough, but, uh, or no, the smooth wood of the manger, but Jesus exchanged that for the rough, but well-worn wood of the cross. And I was making these analogies or com comparisons of what Jesus exchanged, like the uh, praises of the angels, glory to God in the highest for the shouts of crucify him, crucify him. He exchanged swaddling clothes for probably being naked on the cross. But the teenager, he had the issue of the wood of the manger. He goes, Pastor, I remember learning in Bible study at Shorewind that it was probably a, a uh, stone manger. And I said, yes, you're probably right. But it wasn't a stone <laughs> cross. I said, thank you for listening very closely to my sermon. But for this comparison, it needed to be a wooden manger. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I just, I just thought that was so awesome that he, he was listening that closely that he wanted to correct me. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Hey, that's is, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, it's nothing. Go. Okay. Is there anything else you want to bring up? I think we've talked enough. We won't even get to the epistle lesson, which is we do. You know, Jeremy, if we would have been here because we had so much to talk about, we would have we would have been an hour and hour and fifteen, hour and twenty minutes just on the gospel lesson. This is good. Yeah, right. This is like there's a lot of stuff in this gospel lesson. Oh yeah, and I think too, like brothers, you know, listening to our podcast. If you don't, well, one, I always plug Deutschlander. He's just he was my favorite prophet, MLC, and all that too. And he's just a great writer. Get read through that in your prep. You know as you look at this text. And then also, too, one thing I forgot, uh, in one of the two Prepared to Answer books by Pauschen, he addresses this uh, setting with John. And I thought he put it so well. I don't know if I had it copied and pasted in here anywhere. 
but I just love how he put it, uh, picturing John's disciples coming back to John and whispering to him through the grate and at the ground level into the pit in which he sat. It's just a great setting, whichever book it is, if you have it, I know you can find it. Um, but saying, oh, John, you should see the things that he does and how the deaf here and the mute uh, can speak again. And he uses this image of, you know, talking about how he does all things well. And he comes into this mess of humanity and just leaves peace in his wake is a way that he says, it. in fact, I should just. Well, yeah. And it's, I think that. it's interesting too, for our listeners, because I'll hear it too. Uh, you know, all pastors, we need to shorten sermons because people's attention spans are so short. And yet, you know, we've been talking for 40, 45 minutes on one text and then try and get a pastor to, to limit it down to 15 to 20 <laughs> minutes is is to just to understand how difficult it can be. And that's why we we look at these texts every year. And then thankfully, a lot of these texts are uh, again similar in the in the other gospels. So you can preach in, in a different way in the next year. Yeah. So, I believe it's potion. He gets at it and more prepared to answer. I found my note. It's in I wrote it in Luke's gospel, page one forty two. So it must be the first. Oh no, the second book. More prepared to answer, but okay. just the way he puts it. It's just a great resource, I thought, because it helps you see the the joy of the disciples that they certainly would have carried with them, and also the. Well, Pouch is just such a great writer to the the peace that we have that John was given to, even as he sat still, his circumstance physically on this earth didn't change, right? And in fact, it was about to get a little bit worse from a human perspective, but um, the eternal circumstance, even though it had not changed in his heart, it improved with the reminder of I am the Christ. I am the coming one. I am here now. I am. I am fulfilling all of Old Testament scripture, and I won't stop until it's done. Is, and that's why I say expect what's expected. That's what John struggled with a little bit. We struggle with that sometimes too. Is expect what God promises, and and that just takes a growth in faith and the experiences too of growing in faith. Not to emphasize experience because it's not about what you experience because. That's the beautiful thing about God's promises. It stands outside of your experience. Because so many of God's promises, if all we do is judge it or judge what God says and anything of his word of what my personal experience has been, then we'd all walk away. Right? Right. Um, but Jesus says, here's exactly what's going on. Nothing can break my promises to you. And that's what we get to do in this Advent season as we get ready for Christmas then too. It's just we get to expect it and should, we should expect him to do exactly what he said he's going to do uh, before he comes on the last day as well. And nothing's going to stop him uh, that time either. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up here. So this is Michael Zarling with Ben Enstead and we're both saddened because we've been lightenless. Uh, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wants the water of life, take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>